if you're being physically abused, you need to make an exit plan ASAP. How do you forgive when the wound is still open? How do you leave a legacy of redemption instead of dysfunction? How do you trust God when your deepest fears are realized? Join me, Sarah May, along with some wise mentors along the way as we explore these and other messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Today starts a new series on marriage and the complicated nature of it all when abuse and infidelity become tangled up in the vows of commitment. Throughout this series, you'll hear from different couples and individuals and the struggles and wisdom they've gained as they've gone through the journey of staying in their marriage or leaving it. As you listen, I encourage you to keep an open mind, knowing that marriages and the individual intricacies and intimacies are complicated even in Christian marriages. As Christians, we learn to stick it out, for the most part, no matter what. But sometimes there are situations that aren't cut and dry, and the key is to put our marriages before the Lord and talk to Him and follow Him. At the end of the day, though, it takes the humility and courage of two people wholly committed to making a marriage work. And sometimes that just doesn't happen. The stories you're going to hear in this series are just that— people's individual stories. You and I might not endorse everything we hear, but that's okay because my goal is to have us listen and learn something. And even if we don't understand, we can still have compassion. So at the end of the day, even if we might disagree or be confused, that's okay. And if you have questions or comments, please feel free to write to podcast at sarahmay.com. With all that said, We are opening our series today with Allison Fallon, who is an author, writing coach, and speaker. I met Allison a few years ago when we worked together on a writing course, and she is tender and smart and inspiring. She is also divorced, and today we're going to hear her story. You can also find her story in her new book, Indestructible, and you can find that at indestructiblebook.com or in the show notes. At the end of today's podcast, you'll hear a preview of next week's episode where I talk to a woman who caught her husband texting with another woman, making plans to meet up with her. You're also going to hear from the husband. Again, you can hear that preview at the end of today's episode. Here we go. Hi, Allison. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So I gave listeners a really brief introduction about what you do Uh, Could you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about that, what you're doing these days and how you help people? Yeah. So I am uh, writing books, helping people write books, and I also am helping people get started in a regular practice of writing who feel like they have something to say, but aren't sure quite how to say it. So by that, I mean people who have thought of writing something, but would say, oh, no, 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 I'm not a real writer. Or, you know, that's for people who are really talented or trained or whatever. I, um, the research is really compelling and I've seen this to be true with my own eyes that writing is such an incredibly powerful way for people to transform their own stories and their lives that, um, I think it's valuable for anyone to try. So those are the three things that I'm doing. And I have written a couple books for myself and I've also written a bunch of books for other people and I've helped hundreds of authors outline their books and, um, and yeah, and I live in Nashville, Tennessee, love it here. And I'm, planning a move to LA in November, late November. Awesome. Why don't we go ahead and just jump into the messy kind of untidy stories of life that, (laughs) which is why I have you on here. So I think it would help listeners to get a brief overview of your marriage story, and then we'll dive into specific questions. So why don't you tell us your story, how long you were engaged, married, and in the simplest terms for now, how did it fall apart? Well, I have always wanted to be an author. That's sort of part of the story is I had quit my full-time job back in 2010 to write my first memoir called Packing Light. And I spent a year traveling around the country and wrote about my travels, a book called Packing Light. So back in, I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time, which is where I had grown up. And I was blogging and writing regularly about my 
travels and my experiences and working on this book. And during that time, I wrote an article that my now ex-husband read on a platform that he happened to read every day. And he reached out to me and we started talking via phone and then via Skype. And then I flew to Minneapolis to meet him. And, and then really quickly we got married. So we met on August 30th of 2011 and we're married by December 31st of that same year. So it was four months and a day between the time we met and the time we got married. Wow. So it was a very fast whirlwind romance. And, um, I think, you know, it was part of the thrill of it and it was definitely, I love, I really loved the story and loved telling the story to people. And it was also how I think I missed a lot of what was happening. I just didn't have enough time to process the information that was coming in. So, so that then, yes, then we were married for four years our marriage, I would call it uh, pretty tumultuous. And I didn't have a lot of a lot else to compare it to at the time because I wasn't having honest conversations with people about how their marriages were other than the one thing was we were planting a church together. So at church, people would say to me, oh, you guys are newlyweds. Isn't marriage just the best? Isn't it like a constant sleepover with your best friend? And I would be like, wait, what? <laughs> Like, that's not the experience that I'm having, and I would feel just a wave of shame about it, feel like I couldn't talk to anyone about what was really happening with me. And then, of course, out in the world, you hear people talk about how hard marriage is, how hard the first year of marriage is. We fought all the time. I remember asking a friend about her marriage. I said how this was like in a little, a couple years into our marriage when I started to get a little bit more brave about asking people questions. But I said, do you, you and your husband fight? And she said, oh yeah, we fight all the time. Mm -hmm. And I went, okay. And I didn't ask any more questions. And she said to me later after reading the book, she said, I wish I would have asked you more questions. Like, what do you mean by fight? Because she was like, we fight, of course, but that's nothing like the kind of fighting you were experiencing. So, um, so yeah, so I think that's, that, uh, was a little bit what the marriage was like for me until the day that everything ended, which was just before our fourth four-year anniversary, um, was the day that I stumbled across this information that, for me, changed the entire framework of how I was. It just changed the framing of how I was telling myself the story because suddenly this the the new information just colored and recolored everything. So um, so that happened at the end, right before our four-year anniversary. And that was, you know, pretty much D-Day. That was, yeah, that was basically the end. You said something so interesting. You said that when you were feeling these things about your marriage and, you know, wanting to know how other people felt and was it normal, you said you just felt a lot of shame. Where was the shame coming from? I think the shame question, I didn't have words for it at the time because, I mean, I think that's part of the power of shame is that it doesn't have words attached to it. It's one of the most powerful things we feel, it dictates our behavior more than just about anything else. But we don't have words. Usually a shame feeling doesn't have words. It's very visceral. So that means you feel it in your body, but you don't have you don't have an explanation for it. But now that I have words for it, I think the words are something like maybe I don't have what it takes to be in love, or maybe I'm not lovable, or maybe I I'm not a good wife, or maybe this is all my fault. So I didn't have words for that at the time. I wouldn't have said that out loud, but I do think, you know, later after the relationship ended and I was processing a lot of the pain I was feeling, those were those questions were questions, you know, am I really lovable? Is it possible for me to be in a loving relationship? Is this all my fault? Those were questions that I actually had to answer for myself. And once I answered the questions for myself, really honestly, then the shame lifted and it gave me more permission and more room and more leniency to start making decisions from a place of my authentic self rather than from a place of shame. And that just makes all the difference in the world. That is so good. And I love how you said that shame often doesn't have words. It's very visceral. It's so true, which is one of the things that makes us feel like we're crazy because we can't put words to it. I remember feeling that so much growing up in the relationship with my mom, which was an abusive relationship, and I couldn't put words to it. Yes. And that was the hardest thing. And it was just because there was so much manipulation and confusion. So I love how you described that. I think that's perfect. And one thing I want to say really quickly, I just want to add this really quickly. And this, we could go on a long tangent with this, but we don't have to. But 
the the fact that you brought up the relationship to your mom and the manipulative the manipulative nature of that relationship is significant because part of why, especially when it comes to intimate partnerships, that we don't have words for the shame we feel in those relationships, is that that it is it is preverbal. It's actually we have programming in our brains. If you read any of the research on attachment theory, your your relationship to your primary caregiver in the first 12 months of life, so before you have any words and before you have any conscious memory, that relationship to that primary caregiver plays a massive role, almost dictates the way that you do life and relationships with people in the future. So it's not disconnected that you're talking about a manipulative relationship with your mom and I'm talking about a manipulative relationship with an ex-husband. They're very, they're incredibly similar and it's the reason why you'll have a friend who's in a relationship that you're like, this makes no sense. He's terrible to you. (laughs) And to her, she's like, wait a second, but I'm in love with him and I could never possibly leave him. And I would drop anything to go help him. And it's because it's not, it's operating outside of logic. And until we can get to that place, that's primal and preverbal until we can pull that up into our conscious minds and start to process through it, our hope of creating any sort of positive change in our life is basically, it's slim. I know. It's it's so true. And I, well, two quick things. One, I love how you say in your book, our bodies hold truths our minds can't yet understand. And I'm like, isn't that the truth? Oh my gosh. When we don't understand logically what's going on, you do. It's like you have to go back to the root and try and figure out like, what are you telling me? Like being gentle with yourself yeah, and trying to understand what, what's really going on here and sitting with that. And also as far as far as the attachment theory and stuff, I've been reading this book. It's called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog and Other Traumatic Childhood Stories Ooh. or Psychiatrist's Journal of What He Has Learned About Trauma. And he he just says the same things, like especially with infants, if they're not touched or held, all of the actual impacts that that affect your brain as you grow. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Well, Allison, we could totally go on a tangent about that, but I'm going to not do that right yet. <laughs> I'm going to divert us back here to our story because I know that there are women listening who are in marriages who are really struggling. In your book, you say marriage felt like a prison. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, well, I mean, the practicals of it was that I was in a relationship with a person who really, well, I'll just say it the way that I want to say it, and then I'll contextualize it. I try not to name him or his story because it's his, it's his, but who was really, I would, I would classify him as quite controlling. And let me just give you a few examples of that. So for example, when we were first married, I, I, he was told me that if I wanted to go on a run, for example, I needed to ask permission because I, because my time now was our time. And if I was going to go for a run, I needed to ask permission. So that's just one example. He also had really specific ways. He liked things done in the house. He liked the dishwasher loaded only a certain way. He really liked, you know, the bathroom fan turned on before anyone got in the shower, not after. And um, so just to the point where it was, I remember feeling like even if I gave all my mental and emotional energy in a day to doing things, just the practical things, the way he wanted them done. I still would fall short. He still would be frustrated with me, frustrated that things weren't done correctly. And so it was this constant sense of failure and falling short. So that was one way that it felt like a prison. I remember stumbling across an old journal of mine and I didn't often keep journals while I was married, which is, was unusual for me because I had spent my entire life journaling and during the marriage, I didn't keep journals because I, nothing was also, I didn't have any privacy. I wasn't allowed to keep anything. So, um, so I was afraid of him reading something I had written. And I was afraid of, that he would read something I had honestly written and it would upset him. But I stumbled across this old moleskin journal where I had been writing a list of things I needed to do for my business and a grocery list. And it was, you know, much more practical. And then at the bottom of the page, I wrote, let me see if I can remember the exact sentence. It was something like, I never knew how much it could hurt to be to to be married to someone who hates you. Oh gosh. This is miserable. I I don't have a way or something like that. I remember writing I never knew how much it could hurt to be married to someone who hates you. But, and who knows? I mean at, now like you could ask him maybe if he hated me. I don't know if he hated me or not, but I definitely the prison I was living in is the prison of thinking 
believing, feeling, experiencing on a daily basis that this person hated me, but felt obligated to me. And so was living in the same house with me. Um, but that I, I made him miserable. I mean, I really did feel like I make you miserable. So, uh, so yeah, it felt like living in a prison. That's so awful. You know, again, that just goes back to those manipulative relationships where you feel like you're the one who's the problem. Yeah. And you can't seem to make sense of that. So you keep trying to be better and better and better. And it's like you just can't ever do enough or be enough. And I know I noticed that throughout your book. You constantly felt like an idiot or like a joke or like a drama queen or yeah. you know, you all throughout the book you label all these things that you thought about yourself. And it never once until sort of the end did you think maybe there's something wrong with him or, you know, maybe something's not right. It's not just me. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the only way out of that trap is to start to talk to other people so that you're only so that you're not getting your only reflection because relationships are mirrors. They're reflecting us back to ourselves. But if you're only getting your reflection back from one person, you can't trust that as an accurate reflection. So like, you know, I'm, I have dozens of friends who I'm really very close with and I have very now like loving, supportive, vulnerable relationships with people who I totally trust and, and they're, I give them lots of access to my life and to my inner world and all of that. And when I get a reflection back from all of the people across the spectrum, it might even be an unpleasant quality about myself. It's like, oh, Allie can, I, she can kind of run her mouth. Like she doesn't think before she speaks. It's like I can receive that as part of the fullness of who I am because they also reflect back to me that I'm also like one of their favorite people to be around. And I have a, have a way of getting people and pulling to people into a deeper conversation and that I, I have insightful things to add to conversations. And so it's like part of the fullness of who I am. And I'm not relying on just one person as my only feedback back to me about who I am and what I'm like and how they experience me. Because one person is just one person. Yeah, that's really good. I think that's so wise. I thought it was interesting in one part of your book, you talk about your ex-husband lying to you. Yeah. And you say, we lie because we're terrified of losing love. And on that same page, just like a paragraph down, you say that he was the best man you'd ever known. And I thought, look at that. (laughs) It seems like we lie to ourselves for the same reason. Why do we do this? Yeah. Well, I think it's one of the, one of the most clever tricks (laughs) of, um, you know, when I think back about one of the big questions I had when I was writing the book was what compels a woman to walk down the aisle to marry a man she doesn't love. And answering that question was really hard for me. One of the things that compelled me, but it's also been the most healing thing I've done. I'll say that. One of the things that compelled me to do this, I think was Being in relationship with him gave me permission to not be honest with myself. And being honest with ourselves takes a ton of resilience to shame because we have to look at ourselves really honestly. It takes a lot of emotional heavy lifting. We've got to actually be willing to do our own work and um, to get over ourselves and to let our ego be crushed again and again and to face embarrassment and all this stuff And and to learn what it feels like to be really lonely and not try to fill the space with just anything that's there. So that's all. And and that's just a a quick list, but there's a whole long list of things that we have to do if we're going to be really honest with ourselves and really live in our lives with our whole heart. And I think a lot of us are in relationships that are less than satisfying because the drama in that relationship is a great excuse to not have to face any of our own, you know what? So it's the drama in my marriage was a fantastic excuse not to have to face myself. Because every day, instead of facing myself, I was trying to make sure I loaded the dishwasher correctly. And that I didn't forget to turn on the bathroom fan before I got in the shower, you know? So it's like occupying all this emotional and mental bandwidth that that I have this, um, it's a really worthy reason why I can't take that same emotional bandwidth and direct it at something that's actually going to propel, propel me forward. So yeah, I mean, I think in order to leave a relationship like that too, you have to be ready to do that work. I had to sit in the pit of my own loneliness in order to leave him. Wow. And there were moments when I thought this might be worse, (laughs) but the the reason that I, you know, 
I made the decision that it wasn't worse. Honestly, I made the decision that sac- like trading my soul, my own soul, for not having to face myself wasn't worth the trade anymore. Um, and that I was ready to be a woman and grow up and get over my the way I was moving through the world as a little girl. Uh, you know, like little girls will transfer all their power and identity to someone else, will hand the keys over to someone else really quickly and hop in the passenger seat. And a woman has to sit in the driver's seat of her own life and you got to decide which direction am I going and you have to own your mistakes. And yeah, it's definitely, it's not been easy, but it's, it is a hundred percent worth it. I often think about that whole little girl thing, how we revert to being like a little girl and you saying that mm-hmm. instead of being in the passenger seat and giving our power to somebody else, like getting in the driver's seat and just and owning our mistakes and making decisions. Yeah. And I think one of the big struggles that we have as women who have grown up in the evangelical world and in the church at all is that we grew up in a, con- a social context, a social construct that actually celebrates a woman handing the keys of her life over to a man. And I don't actually think at the end of the day, I think it's amoral. By that, I mean, I don't think most people are maliciously out to get, like to keep women small or to keep them down. And maybe there are some people who are, but I don't think that taking that on as a competition of men versus women is helpful. But I do think that if we think about the fact that we've grown up in a context that actually celebrates a woman who stays quiet and stays in the kitchen and serves the men in her life and sort of like is responsible for keeping them emotionally grounded. And when you celebrate over and over again, women who do that, you, you don't give a a woman a lot of room to take ownership over her own life. Mm -hmm. And, and as women, we just don't have a lot of great models of what it looks like to be fully embodied and empowered and, and, taking ownership of our own selves, our own souls. No, that's so good. I actually remember, I don't know, are you familiar with Sally Clarkson at all? Oh, yeah. She's just amazingly wonderful, beautiful dear. And she told me once, I remember I was talking to her about a struggle I was having it with my husband and he knows all this, so he's fine if I'm talking about it. But there was a point where I wanted to do all of these things with my kids or whatever. And I'd be like, come on, honey, like, don't you want to do all of this? And he was tired from work or whatever. And he just didn't want to go adventuring or doing anything at a certain season. And I remember telling Sally, like, so we just don't do anything, blah, blah, blah. And she literally said to me, because you need to own your life. If he doesn't want to do it, that's fine. But like, you go do it. Like, take your kids And go. As long as he doesn't have some, you know, real reason for you not to do it without him, you know, like I've been waiting all my life to see that and you went without me. But, you know, she's like, you've got to own your life. And I thought that was so profoundly simple. Like, why why did I not know that? Why did I not know that I could make decisions and do things with my kids? And I was not raised in the church. I mean, I was raised by a feminist mother. Oh, wow. And I didn't become a Christian until college. And I think that I came up under some very healthy Christian mentors, which I'm so, so grateful for. But but everything seeps in, right? And so whatever had seeped into me that I couldn't make decisions, I just, it's so fascinating. Anyway, I just, when you said Own Your Life, I was like, yes, Sally has a book called Own Your Life. And she taught, taught me that lesson. And I was so very grateful. I love it. So when did you know for sure, I have to get out of here? And if you wouldn't mind, you you tell a story to a friend of yours about the horse and the pen. And I would, if you'd be willing, I'd love for you to tell that story and how you knew when you had to leave. Yeah. The moment I knew I needed to leave was the moment that it's the first chapter in the book. It's the moment that I uncover the information that had been hidden from me for so long because again, that shame voice in my head the whole time I was in the relationship was saying, to me, if you just try harder, we can fix this. Like we can just work harder, do, you know, do more work, love him better. We can come through this. We're going to have such a redemptive story of our marriage. It's going to be an encouragement to so many people. You're going to write a book about, you know, I had this whole thing happening in my head. And as soon as I discovered the information that had been hidden from me for so long, that was the moment that I was like, oh, wait a second. I, this is not a one-way street. And just me working harder, you know, I thought he was working with me and just me working harder to, to change things is a recipe for disaster. And it, it was like, it snapped me back into reality, um, which the truth always does for us. And I say that in the book, the truth always 
the truth hurts, yes, but it is our it is our only way to freedom because it's the only thing that puts us back in touch with the reality of what's actually happening. So um, the story of the horse was I was at a healing retreat here in Nashville. It's called Onsite, and I'm really open about the fact that I've been out to Onsite twice. It's a week long therapeutic retreat. It's basically like getting a year's worth of therapy in a week, and it's really incredibly valuable. And I would recommend it to anybody. But I was at this retreat, and one of the exercises that they have you do is equine therapy. So you do therapy with the horses. And um, the woman who was coordinating the entire thing, there were two horses we could choose from. So she asked us to pick the horse we'd like to be in the pen with. And then as I'm watching other people go through this exorcism, thinking this is sort of easy, like what could be so revealing about this, you know? Um, you pick a horse and you go in the pen with the horse and she has you, she gives you some instructions and you do some different things with the horse. So I watch a friend of mine go in the pen with uh, this horse who is the, definitely the stronger will of, of the two horses. And she, immediately when she walks in the pen, the horse starts, you know, rearing its head and bucking and going crazy. And um, she ha- the, the trainer has her do a couple of things with the horse and then she leaves the pen and she's talking to my friend privately about, you know, horses can tune into your energy. So this is, it's a really, it's part of the therapy of it. It's a really great way to see your energy reflected back to you. And so the trainer asks me, it's my turn next. And she said, which horse would you like to go with? Do you want to go with Lightning, who's this really strong-willed horse that I had just seen go crazy on my friend? Or would you like to go with the much calmer, older, sweet horse? <laughs> And I said, I want to go with lightning. And she said, "Um, okay, how do you feel about that? So she's reading me too and my expression. And I said, you know, I'm I'm scared. She said, let me ask you a question. Why would you want to get in in the pen with a horse that you're afraid of? And I said, I don't know that I can answer that question. And she said, well, okay, I'm going to let you go in there, but I just want you to know something. You can leave anytime you want. Well, like once you're in there, you're not, you can leave the pen anytime you want. And really, so then I got nothing really at all that eventful happened while I was in the pen with the horse. But the, the takeaway for me from that experience was you can leave this pen anytime you want. And what would make you want to get in the pen with a horse who scares you? Yeah. So yeah, the significance of that really was this realization right after I discovered what was really going on in my marriage was like, you can leave anytime you want. And that was so counterintuitive to me. And it was so, it ran so countered to what I had been taught and told about marriage and the approach I took to my marriage going into it, which was like, come hell or high water, we're going to get through this. We're in it together. I'm for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. And on top of all that, my dad is a marriage counselor. So for my entire life, I've heard him talk about, you know, helping married couples come out of really difficult seasons. So And yeah, I just think the realization for me in the moment was, this is what's significant. The realization was, you have a choice. And I want that to be the takeaway for anyone who's listening right now, is no matter where you are or what you're doing or what kind of relationship you're in, you need to know that you have a choice. The minute you know you have choices is the minute that you find all the freedom and power you've been looking for and waiting for. And we don't want to admit that we have choices because it requires us to be mature and to make our own choices and own our own choices. We would like to think that like this terrible life just happened to me and I didn't have anything to do with it, but you have choices. You can stay and you can go. Yeah. I've grown up in a household where my dad has literally quote unquote saved all of these marriages, um, which is that's, that was my interpretation as a young woman of what was happening. But you know, now looking back, I'm like, there were so many, misinterpretations. First of all, my dad's not saving any marriages. Marriages, only two people in the marriage can save the marriage, first of all. Second of all, this is a really fantastic paradigm shift that I had, a conversation I had with my dad that was really healing for me. After all of this went down, I sat down with him and said, what has it been like for you that you have dedicated your entire career to helping married couples come, you know, come to stay together? And, um, and now you have a daughter who is divorced And he said, honestly, the biggest thing it's done for me is it's just a reminder that not every married couple should stay together. He said, I think I used to have couples walk into the room and think, without a doubt, unequivocally, it's best to fight for the marriage. And he said, now I just know that there are some circumstances when that's not the case. And 
I think it's a, it's an important paradigm shift for a lot of people within the church to have too. And anytime I feel like I have a pastor's ear or their trust on this issue, I especially male pastors, I I'll take it because I think um, one of the most damaging things, accidental accidentally damaging things, pastors can do. They mean well, but they just don't have a lot of experience or especially personal experience with women who have told their stories of being in physically, emotionally, spiritually abusive relationships. And so you, and you don't know the statistics. You don't realize when you're talking about marriage and you're saying the way to save your marriage is to never leave that you're speaking to a room full of women where statistics say one in three of them will experience some sort of physical violence in their partnership, in their domestic partnership at some point in the lifetime of partnership. So I think we just have to take that into our process as spiritual leaders and guides in whatever context, that when you're speaking to people about marriage, we just need to, we need to include that as part of our understanding. Yes. So once you finally realized that you needed to get out of the pen, so to speak, what were some of the fears you faced in leaving and what fears came true and how did you face them and get through them? Well, I remember the two biggest fears. One was from the inside of my own mind. Well, I mean, sort of related to stuff he had said to me, but mostly it was just my own voice. And the fear was, how will I ever make money and support myself? Which now looking back is such an absurd fear, Sarah, because like I have an incredible earning power. I have a master's degree. I, but like when you're in a relationship with some, when you're in, a, in that kind of relationship, logic all goes out the window. So, so again, I'm making assumptions, making decisions based um, on the feeling I had, which is that I, I have nothing to offer. So yeah, so it's just interesting to see the dichotomy, to, to remember so vividly saying to myself, how will I ever pay my mortgage? I remember thinking that. Who would ever hire me? You know, how will I ever pay my mortgage? So the second fear, the second thing that was going through my head was, um, and this was a phrase that came directly from him in an argument we were having. So I do give him a bit of leniency here, leniency here that he said this in a point of a lot of anger, but he said to me, who would ever date you? Um, and I definitely felt like if I leave this relationship, who, who will ever have me again? You know, so that's always such a lie for women anyway. And then so for him to actually say it, you know what I mean? Like we never want to break up because what if there's nobody else for us? And then he says it and you're like, what? No. Yeah. Yeah. So those two things were really definitely powerfully, they were powerful motivators in, in terms of like the tension that I felt between the moment I found the, the found the information that I found and the moment I filed for divorce, which was only about six weeks, honestly. Oh no, eight weeks, eight weeks. But between that time, that was the, any tension I felt was based on that. It was like, and here's the thing, the, the takeaway for me is, and the thing I always remind myself, anytime you're in a situation with someone who makes you feel like they are the answer to all your problems they have ac- the access, the money, the power, the whatever to get you where you're trying to go. You know that you're being manipulated. You know, you just know it's not true. The only way out, it's a double bind because it's like, as long as you make me happy, I will give you this money or I will stay with you, but you can never make them happy. So the only way out is just to call them on their BS. It's not true. It's no human being has that much power over our lives. We're the only ones who get to write our own stories. We're the only ones who get to decide where we're, you know, how this is going to go. We don't have total control, but we have a lot of control. We have many choices when it comes to any one thing. And, um, and so I think leaving the relationship was in a sense, my way of calling him on his BS. It was like, I will see about that. We'll see it. We'll see whether or not I can pay my mortgage without you. And we'll see if anyone else will ever date me, you know? And um, it's been really powerful for me to get answers to those questions rather than living in the fear that the answer might be, I can't make any money and no one ever else ever dates me. You know, um, that has definitely not been the answer to those two questions. So, Yeah, yeah. And I just want to say this, I'm sure, because I know you, I've read your book now, and listeners haven't done that yet. And so I just want to say that Allison 
tried to make her marriage work. I mean, she, I, I just know I'm, I'm already anticipating people be like, well, it sounds like you didn't even try. And I'm like, no, listen, she had so many whammies come her way. There was, you know, infidelity and abuse. And she kept thinking, first of all, that the problem was her. But second of all, she wanted it to work. It's like she said going in, like, I don't want to get a divorce. This is not how we're going into this marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm trying to just let you guys know (laughs) that she tried, and this is when you get to the end. This is when you realize this is not healthy. This is not safe. This is not okay. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to throw that out there for people who have not yet read your book and, and have really have no idea who you are. Yeah. And I want to add something to that too, that, um, that brings up the question for a lot of women that I talk to, you know, what, because I would say if you're in a marriage that's abusive, there's no such thing as trying. I mean, like you can't live, you can't live in the same house with someone who makes you fear for your physical or emotional safety. So then, so then the question is becomes the next question for women who I talk to is like, well, how do you know if a relationship is emotionally abusive and then obviously there's a wide spectrum of what emotional abuse looks like. And, um, can we move the needle at all on that? How much is too much, you know, like, is it, is it too bad for me to stay? Is it good enough that we can try to pull this thing out of the, out of the gutter? And, um, that's not a question I can answer in a single podcast, but I can say one clue is you can't get very far in a marriage or in a, partnership with someone if only one person is willing to really be honest and do the work. In fact, I mean, I think that there's a period of time that you can be patient and wait to see, to invite someone into a space where there's enough safety to start to tell the truth and to start to work through your own emotional, the, the, the things that are getting in the way of you having a healthy partnership. There's some time, there's some patience that can be had, but if the answer is no, I'm not willing to see a therapist. I'm not willing to talk about this. I'm not willing to go there with you. There's just not a lot you can do. So I just want to say, I just want to put that out there. Uh, I, I don't know if it's an answer to a question, but I, that's a, it is a question that's brought up a lot. It's like, well, how do I know if I'm in an emotionally abusive relationship? No, I think that's a great thing to put out there. Jesse and I were just having this conversation. Actually, as I was reading your book, we were like, what is, how do you even define abuse or emotional abuse because, you know, somebody could say, well, my husband, I don't know, called me a name one day and is that emotional abuse? Or, you know, like Jesse literally said to me, he was so nervous. He was like, do you think that I emotionally abuse you? Because like sometimes he gets angry or upset at me about something and sometimes I get angry and I'm like, no, like, (laughs) like, no, that's not it. And so it's true. There's this Because you don't want, you know, just to be like, oh, hey, like things are just not awesome right now. I'm just going to bail. And there's something to be said for working through things. And I even had a woman write to me recently who's, I think she had said her husband was somewhat verbally abusive to her and, and they did go to therapy and like they did work it out. Like there were times, like she, this was something that they did together to choose to work out and there was humility and blah, blah, blah. But I do think that That's a really hard, I don't know how you figure that out. Well, I think the number one thing, piece of advice I would give is you don't figure it out alone. So anytime that there's isolation, that's room for shame to grow. And it's isolation and privacy are the absolute enemy of growth. So there has to be another couple, a therapist, a somebody that you're telling the truth to. And by truth, I mean the entire truth. So it, there has to be, you know, if if you were called a name, there has to be someone who gets to know this is exactly what happened. This was exactly the name that was called. This was my response. This is what we said. And then there has to be a willingness from both parties to say to step back and and drop the ego defense and say, "Yep, I did that. That's that's an action I regret." And I'm really invested and interested in doing some healing around that so that I don't do that again. Cause I recognize that that was really hurtful to you. Um, and I don't want to hurt you cause I love you. If there's, if there aren't those kinds of conversations happening, I'm just saying, you're just not going to get very far. You, and, and it's, here's the thing. It's flipping hard. It is so hard, especially if you're, you've not been modeled this kind of behavior. You're not used to it. 
it's, it feels incredibly vulnerable. It can be totally terrifying. Um, it can be so hard. So I have a ton of empathy for people who don't do it because now that I've done it, I'm like, oh, no wonder people don't do this. It's terrifying. But then once you've done it and you've been held in safety around it and you realize like I'm in a relationship now with a man who I really, you know, think I will end up with. And um, our conflicts are, uh, uh, this is partly just his integrity and character and partly the work that I've done and he's done and, and the relationship, the dynamic we have together. But it's like I, not a day goes by that I'm not noticing how different this is than, than the conflicts I had before. It's not just like my friend who I told, I said, asked her, you know, do your, you and your husband fight? It's not that the conflicts are, are any, it's not that we don't have conflicts or we don't even have, you know, there are periods of time where things are really stressful and we'll have a few conflicts all in a row that makes it feel like, oh yeah, but the conflicts are, resolved quickly with respect for one another. There's not any explosiveness. There's no drama. There's no name calling or yelling. There's no um, punishing. There's no bitterness or resentment held after the fact. And that difference is the different, all the difference. It's the, it can make the difference between a relationship that's really, it's hardening your heart over time. It's making you, uh, it's keeping, it's holding you from your, from a deeper relationship with God. It's holding you from what you have to offer to the world versus a relationship where you're flourishing. Mm, that's really good. And I just want to say to women out there that there are plenty of men who do not abuse. And I know that sounds crazy to say, but I think there are women, and I know I've done this in the past, we make excuses like, well, we just, we push them too far or they didn't mean to do it. I think about when I was 14 or 15 years old and my mom was um, in a relationship and I aggravated him and I probably was pushing his buttons and he put his hands around my neck and he squeezed like he was choking me. And to this day, I still have a hard time not making excuses. Like I pushed him like that was my fault. I shouldn't have pushed him, you know, and my husband has never in 15 years laid a hand on me. Never, ever, ever, ever in any aggressive way whatsoever. And so daily I'm still learning and, and remembering like, no, there are men who don't do it. You can't have self-control. That's so important for women I think to hear the truth that no, a a man can have self-control and if he doesn't, then major intervention and help is needed. Yeah. And let me add to that too, that a man can have one thing I hear women do all the time too, is justify a man's actions because of his intentions. A man can have excellent intentions and simply not be capable of regulating his own affect. And if that is the case, I don't care how good his intentions are. He might have a really great heart And he needs to go do his own work so that he doesn't put other people in danger. It's no different. You know, let me put it in a different context so that it makes way more sense. If a man was like a really sweet man who had a great heart but was accidentally, because of his uncontrollable impulses, molesting children, never would we make allowances or excuses for that. So it's it's we get focused as women sometimes on intentions, and I think – there are plenty of times when a man has great intentions. I mean, I would say this for the, I write about the relationship that came for me after my marriage ended that was very healing for me in so many ways. But it was, it was a man who had excellent intentions, but didn't have, you know, he didn't have this, what it took to stay in it in a relationship with me. So it wasn't a fit for us. He's a lovely, I still to this day, like I think so fondly of him because I think he really cared about me a lot and helped me to see myself the way I would say God sees me, the way I see myself now, you know. Um, he gave me a lot of confidence in myself. But that does, But at the end of the day, if you're with a man who has excellent intentions but can't control, can't regulate his own emotions in a way that is safe and helpful for you, then, then you know, like to your point, he's just got to do a little bit of work so that he can get there. Or a lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I just keep thinking about, we were talking earlier about this other book I'm reading, and I think it's called um, Black and White Bible, Black and Blue Wife, or maybe yes. I'm the title. Yep. That's it. Here's an excerpt from that book I find enlightening. 
Ruth, the author and the woman who lived through years of physical violence, told her story to a pastor. And this is what she says. In the many years he had served as a pastor, he had repeatedly counseled abused women to get out of their dangerous domestic situations. They took his advice until their husbands wept and apologized and pleaded for reconciliation, promising never to beat them again. But the violence always continued. If you're being physically abused, you need to make an exit plan ASAP and call, call a domestic violence abuse hotline make an exit, exit plan if, and ask yourself the question, you know, if he were putting my children in danger, would I be making these excuses and allowances for him? And maybe he is putting your children in danger. You know, it's hard for us to take, as, take the kind of care of ourselves that we would take of our kids, but it's just no different. It's really no different. I understand the kind of fear that comes with, you know, one thing I was really afraid of was the retaliation I thought, if I leave, he's going to be so angry. I remember thinking, he will track me down. <laughs> like, And so I think, you know, you have to be realistic about that and get, like, just be smart about it and enlist the help of friends and therapists and professionals and whatever you need to do. But I just wanted to make that statement even more strongly. If you're, if you're in physical danger, this is not, it's not safe. It's not sustainable. There's not going to be a better time get out than right now. And it's not your fault. hundred percent. I have pushed my husband in every possible way and pushed all of his buttons. And in my brain, I would think I totally would deserve it if he hit me. And that's such a lie from the devil. Like that's just not even true. And he never has. So it's not your fault. Yeah. And it was helpful. I felt like one of the thing, one of the great gifts to me in the season after my marriage ended was all of the men that came across my path who were really to, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, Sarah, that there are so many men out there who are really loving, kind, thoughtful, uh, incredible husbands, and just have great inte- like integrity and character. And so many of those men were put in my path after the divorce. And when they would hear stories of things that have happened slowly over time, they would just look me in the eye and say, I, I can tell you, my wife, whatever she said to me, there's nothing she could say that would make me react like that or act like that, or I would never, you know, that was, it was redemptive for me to hear that. So since we're going down this road, I want to talk about how in your book, you talk about going to get a restraining order. And I thought it was so fascinating how you wrote your story for the officer or the intake person or whoever, but you couldn't seem to like physically say the words I'm scared for my physical safety. And I thought, I wonder how many women struggle with like saying the words. Could you shed some light on that for us? Well, at the time, I still wasn't comfortable. This is the insanity of an abusive relationship. I wasn't comfortable calling my relationship physically abusive because I could think of a thousand ways it could be worse. You know, I mean, it took some retraining of my brain to go, oh, so if a person lays a hand on you, that's physical <laughs> abuse. It was like I had made all these justifications in my mind and I, and I was just so in the fog of the trauma that, yeah, it was really, I think naming something gives it an incredible amount of power. And I was terrified of the power that that would give me and of the power it would give to it. And I was terrified of the retaliation and I was so scared of um, being alone and, um, of also, here's the other thing, too, that I implied but never said in the book. You know, I'm explaining this whole story of driving my Mercedes, which was really his Mercedes, to the Domestic Violence Center of Tennessee and filing this restraining order and looking around me. And the feeling was, like, so judgmental, but it was like, I don't belong here. This is not a place for people like me. Like, I grew up in a good family. I went to church my whole life. Like, I'm a pastor's wife. I am driving this nice car. Like, I'm highly educated. I do not belong here. This is not a place. And I think there is this stigma and just a misunderstanding of um, what it means to be in an abusive relationship. There's not a type of woman who gets in an abusive relationship. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with your level of intelligence or your level, your, your, 
your socioeconomic status or you, the kind of family you came from or any of it. It's like, you know, um, someone who wants to, who wants to, and is capable of manipulating a woman to be in a relationship. And it's not just women, but uh, that's, you know, manipulating a person to be in a relationship with them that's abusive in any way is skilled enough as a manipulator that they, they can, you know, um, I could talk for an hour about the brain science behind this, but one term that I learned in the divorce process was this idea of gaslighting where someone says to you over and over again, disqualifies or devalues your perspective on things to the point where you start to feel like maybe I don't have an accurate perception of how things are going. So it's when you feel like you're crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you say it comes from Hitchcock film where the, the wife notices a light flickering because the husband is causing it to flicker and she says the light is flickering and he says, no, it's not. And if you do that to someone over and over again, over time, they really start to believe like, oh my gosh, I'm going crazy. I must be going, I must be seeing things. So, um, so I, I think that, you know, if you're in a situation where you aren't quite sure if what is going on is okay, chances are it might not be okay. Because people who are in healthy, stable relationships don't ask themselves, is this abuse? Like, you know, it's, <laughs> um, you know, I'm in a healthy, stable relationship right now and I don't ever ask myself that question. I feel like, you know, nor- moments of like, ugh, frustrated with him. But I don't ever, I don't ever go like, ooh, geez, is that abusive? He, never. I never, that thought never crosses my mind. Mm, that's good. After your divorce, you had to process through a ton of emotions and healing and restoration and so many things. And one of the things you talk about a little bit, you touch on, is how your relationship with God has had changed through the process. So I know that you grew up in the church, but then you talk about not being able to go to church after the divorce. I mean, it was just very difficult, I think, is what you had said. How has your relationship with God changed because of what happened? Um, I think it's all been for better, honestly. My relationship with God now is much more honest. As I think it's the only kind of relationship God wants to have with us. The less honest that we can be with God, the less likely that we will have, just like any relationship, if you can't be honest within the relationship, there's really no relationship. One of the things that I say in the book, and I say this all the time, is the most loving thing that we can do for anyone is give them their process. So it's about making space for someone to be in process. And I think we get this idea that we have to be arrived. And especially in the church, this is really prevalent. But I mean, I think it's prevalent in wider culture too, just in different ways. But like, we have to have it all together. We have to have our ducks in a row. We have to follow this list of arbitrary rules. We have to like be at church every Sunday looking our best. We've got to like, our kids got to be looking their best. Everybody's got to get good grades. Like it is, and it is absolutely antithetical to what constitutes a real deep, intimate, vulnerable relationship with the, the source of love that we all come from, you know? So, so what I felt in the days after my marriage ended was God's incredible kindness to me. And by that, I mean, I was given the space to have my process. And I gave myself the space to have my process. And in that process, parts of me came out that were really unexpected. (laughs) I found myself making decisions that were very out of alignment with how I had been taught and what I thought was my, you know, value system and um, that that were sort of desperate and sporadic and sad and But it was like, as soon as I gave permission for all the grief I was feeling and all of the heartbreak I was having to just move through me, and I wasn't trying to hold it back and hold it down and pretend like everything was fine. As soon as I did that, it was like it moved through me and then it healed me. And so one of the the other things that I always say too is the, the pain that we're trying so hard to avoid is the medicine. It's here to teach us and to heal us. If we can let it move through us, you think of the image, I mean... For Christians, you think of the image of Jesus on the cross. This is the image of what it looks like 
to let love transform us into something else, into something better, higher, something more heavenly is total surrender, bleeding and in more pain than you can possibly imagine, like arms wide open on the cross. This is the image that we've been given of what it takes to be transformed. I have, I can understand for keeping things all together. That was my life before the divorce happened. And, and really I felt like it was this kind of outside force that came in and shattered the way that I was doing things that really felt almost out of my control. It was like, well, uh, I guess now that I have lost all control, I guess now I have nothing to control anymore. So I'll just kind of like ride this wave, ride the riptide and let it throw me up on the shore. Um, and in that process is where I really feel like I actually found God for the first time ever because it was just me. It wasn't, there was no pretense. There was no, it was just me and all my humanity. The most honest moment of my life, honestly, was that the night I talk about the night in the book where this is the moment, <laughs> this is like the transformation moment, you know? Um, so, yeah. Can you tell us what that moment was? Yeah, it's a moment where after the marriage is over and the relationship that I had with this other man ends, it really feels like everything is totally lost and I'm waiting for my house to sell and it's not selling and I'm feeling really stuck and I'm feeling totally like I've lost all control. Everything's Everything that I've wanted and loved is all gone. I drink an entire bottle of wine by myself at my house and then I call a friend and ask her to come help me build a bonfire in the backyard and I start burning things from my wedding, burning my wedding quilt and my marriage certificate. And, and I just sob and sob and sob in the backyard. And then, then, you know, and I get really frantic and start, um, I'm thinking of, you know, blessing a doorway with oils. I love this story. <laughs> Jesse and I were cracking up, picturing you running through the house, <laughs> ringing your little bell or pot yeah. or, pan or whatever you were doing to make noise. I, oh yeah, that's right. I, I Google, um, how do you clean, evil spirits from our house and found this article about banging pots and pans together. So anyway, so I'm banging pots and pans together. I'm like, I'm like losing it totally and rubbing oil on the doorways of the house. And, and then, you know, after all of that energy, this is that moment of what I was saying, like the grief moving through you, you see yourself do these things that are like so insane. And you're like, where is this coming from? And then it was like this release. I laid down in my bed and the crying slowed. And in that moment, I saw an image of, um, my ex-husband come up in front of me. And in my, it was like a pseudo dream state. I put my hand on his chest and I just said, like, I'm so sorry. And I release you to be who you were meant to be in the world. And then suddenly he disappeared. And it was this other man who I'd had the relationship with, who was also in front of me. And I, I said the same thing to him. I'm so sorry. And I release you to be who you're made to be in the world. And, and I mean, it was just this like incredible moment of relief and release. And then the next morning, my house sold. I love that story. I think it's so honest, so vulnerable, and then also just hilarious. Like, I think it's funny because you were kind of a little out of your mind. (laughs) Yeah. And, but yet you were just processing so true. Yeah. (laughs) So I love it. And it actually reminds me of two things you said also in the book. You said, when you fall apart, you finally don't have to hold it together anymore. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, exhale. And then, and then this, which is just so true is we have two choices. We can hold on and be miserable or surrender to the fire that purifies. And I love that. Like what choice you're going to make. And I know that people are going, what the heck is she talking about? Surrender to the fire that purifies. And so would you just talk a little bit about the, um, I love how you call healing or like the slow pace of healing. And you say how you have to learn how to hurt all the way. And you, you talk about a little bit about what you learned about the word pure and tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So the fire that purifies, that is really what I was talking about before about letting the pain, like the pain that we resist and we resist and resist is the medicine. It's the healing agent, letting that, letting the fire burn in full is a metaphor that's poignant because of that scene in me in my backyard, burning a bonfire, burning all these things from my past. 
I don't even know how to say it, but you said that a pastor friend told you about the word pure. And in Greek, which I don't know how to say the word, but basically it's where we get the word cauterize, which literally means to burn the flesh of a wound so it doesn't get infected. And so you were saying you need to hurt all the way. Like, and then I love that you say, why was it that the burning of a thing, this total undoing of something could also be purifying? Why did that have to be the way we get to see God? And then you go on to talk about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. I kept sitting on my back porch. I mean, I remember, I do really remember vividly being in that moment and thinking about Jesus in the garden saying, like, please give me another way. If there is any other way for me to get where you want me to go, can you please just, can there be a bypass, (laughs) like some sort of spiritual bypass where I don't have to like die and suffer and bleed in, in total embarrassment in front of all these people? And, you know, I think at the end of the day, the, the, unfortunate truth is that is the only way where we're trying to go is total surrender, total surrender of our egos, total surrender of the way we thought things were going to go, um, and letting the pain purify us from the inside out. I will say because of the pain I experienced, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy and I would never want to go through it again, but I also wouldn't trade it because I have more compassion today than I've ever had before. I have more empathy. I have more wisdom. I can sit with people in their pain. I have more to offer to the world. I, I, and I think that's what pain does to us if we, if we can allow ourselves to really experience it. And instead, I think most of us are tiptoeing around our lives trying not to get into too much pain and trying to make sure our kids don't get in too much pain. Don't make any bad decisions. Don't do anything wrong. Instead of what I really gave myself permission to do in the end of the story was like, go ahead, fine, go get it wrong. Because there's no such thing as getting it wrong. I mean, it's like the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I was telling you before we started recording about how much that verse is meant to me and how much, how often it's come back to me. But it's like, you know, we think of repentance as being this sort of browbeating. I just think it's like, it is the kindness of God that calls us to him every time. And that calls us back home. And I think, you know, you think of the story of the prodigal son too. It's like, I have a friend uh, who I worked with on a book who says, when you look at that story, you have to recognize that God didn't just, or sorry, that the father didn't just give the son permission to go on the journey. He financed the trip because he knew where it would lead and he knew the road was always come back home. And I just love that because I think like, we feel like we can't give people leniency or permission or space to have their process because we're worried about the wayward human heart. And I really just think at the end of the day, those concerns are mostly for naught because I think the, the, the call of the human heart is really to come back home to the Father. Beautifully put. For the woman who's listening right now, who's in an abusive relationship, what does she need to know? And what do you, what do you wish you would have known sooner? The number one thing she needs to know is she has choices, that she is strong and she can do this, that if her choice is to leave, if her choice is to stay, I don't judge her, honestly. I don't agree, but I don't judge her because I know how truly hard it is to walk away. So I get it. Um, But I want her to know she has the choice to leave, that she's strong enough to face all of the obstacles that will be in her way. And that life on the other side of it is so much better. It's so good. You know, all the lies that you tell yourself about, will I ever make money or will anyone ever love me or will I ever really be happy or will my kids, will their lives totally fall apart because they're not living in the same house with their mom and their dad. I've just had way too many conversations like this and way too much experience to say, I just know that life on the other, there's just nothing that's worth the kind of suffering, the kind of specific suffering that you're experiencing. And if we know that there is a road of suffering ahead, regardless, you can pick the suffering of staying in a marriage where you're being treated like a second-class citizen. You know, you're being really mistreated, and that's a really particular kind of suffering. Or you can choose the suffering that's ahead of facing the choices you've made and taking accountability for your actions and making a new life for yourself and maybe struggling financially for a little bit and finding your way and falling in love again. And that is a really, really good struggle. It's just really good. In your book, 
you have a friend who shared a blessing with you that I thought was beautiful. And I was wondering if you would give that blessing to the listeners that he gave you to close us out. Ah, yes, of course. His blessing is, may you grow every day in the knowledge of God's love for you. May that knowledge bring you great healing. And through that healing, may you become all you are intended to be. To learn more about Allison and to find her book, Indestructible, which tells the story of her marriage, divorce, and the unfolding of herself as a woman, go to indestructiblebook.com. You can pre-order the book on Amazon, but if you want to order it today and get it in a few days, go to the indestructiblebook.com site. All links and info about today's podcast can be found in the show notes and at sarahmay.com forward slash the complicated heart podcast forward slash episode five. Now here's a quick preview of next week's episode. When Eliana, she's our oldest, when she was about two or three weeks old, Carlos had come home from work and he was upstairs taking a shower and I heard his phone go off. So um, I just picked it up to see what was going on. And I saw that he had a message on there from a girl that he had been speaking with. And I read the message and it said, I'm really afraid that your wife is going to find out. Thank you for listening to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not. So please, if you like the show, take a minute and give it a review. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out sarahmay.com forward slash the complicated heart podcast. See you next time.